This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. No my, had my. Welcome to the Tamaliki Book Festival. On this programme, let's meet the authors and illustrators of the Tamariki Book Festival. Dr Simon Pollard is a successful children's book author, spider expert and natural history writer. He has a fount of knowledge about such things as there's a spider found only in New Zealand, which is only two millimetres long, but can snap its open jaws shut 800 times faster than you can blink. It took a video camera, which can shoot at 40,000 frames a second, have to get that right, to be able to see it happen. Kia ora, Simon. Kia ora. Now, I must admit, I have a bit of a phobia of spiders. <laughs> I, am, <laughs> and I, was, I don't have any on me. You're not, <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the first person no, to not. say that. And <laughs> no, I was, that's true. And I was reading last night and I was like, I was like, oh my goodness, I think I'm the wrong person to talk to Simon. But then maybe I'm the right person. Maybe. Probably are. I'll, give, I'll tell you something. <clears throat> when the... Um, the museum, Canterbury Museum had a spider exhibition and we were very lucky to be able to have live tarantulas on display. And we were very lucky to have live tarantulas on display and I'd been working with a, um, at, at the university we had a spider quarantine lab for, had been running for 20, 30 years and we mainly worked with very small spiders because we were looking at their behaviour and these, guys, these spiders largely very good eyesight but we got permission to bring the tarantulas in and then the museum was like a satellite quarantine facility. So the right. facility there... All the, all, it was all legal. And the show was based on one I'd been involved in in the, in the States. Um, it was sponsored by Marvel Comics, and it toured North America for four years. And when I moved back to New Zealand, somebody said, well, can you do it here? Or could you bring that one over? And I said, it's, it, logistically, that to the bottom of the world, it's huge. Yes. So they said, well, can we do our own? And we did. And people knew I worked with spiders and having the exhibit in Christchurch with the tarantulas, there are a number of people, mainly women and a few men, but women that were so arachnophobic, they weren't sure if they could go into the exhibit. And I I was allowed to take one of the tarantulas was is hand you could handle it like you could handle a kitten. In other words, it was not going to do anything. It wasn't going to bite. And if it did, it wouldn't, they're not dangerous to people. And all of these people that came in with this phobia all of them handled a tarantula. Right. Now, I'm not saying they were cured of the arachnophobia. No. But they but what do you think happened? I think they saw how comfortable I was, and it right. wasn't running round. It was just yeah. sitting there. Yeah. And so when they did the same. Yeah. And it was a real insight into how phobias affect people's lives because one of the women had a music scholarship in Brazil, and she was so scared of spiders. She had this vision that she would walk off the plane onto the tarmac and it would be raining tarantulas. And that's exactly what a phobia is. It's yeah. irrational yeah. that something so extreme is going yeah. to happen. Yeah. But in fact, no, they're fine. I I mean, I call it a phobia and it, it definitely has lessened. I mean, when I was young, it was the fear, the fear of it and unable to go anything near, mm. now I can cope with a daddy long legs and move it. Um, but 
little things, you know, I can hold a lizard or... Mm, I know, that's... Uh, yeah. A praying mantis or other things I'm, like, fascinated by. But it's it, it's second only to snakes as a phobia for people. Right. And a lot of it is, you know, they're venomous. I mean, they're venomous to what they eat. They're not necessarily venomous to us, and yeah. yet some of them are, yeah. by coincidence. Um, and talking to people over the decades, the two things they really don't like is the hairiness and um, the unpredictable movement. Right, yeah. You know, this unthink. And, I mean, mum and my mum was, you know, absolutely fine with spiders. I grew up in a household where everybody liked spiders. But mum was petrified of mice. Right. For no, And that's a totally irrational fear. Yeah. Um, and, and, again, when I've often talking to people over the years, I say, are you scared of spiders? No. What about rodents? Oh, no, I really don't like them. So who knows? Yeah. I mean, we all, we're all slightly strange creatures yeah. anyway. And I, I wonder if there's cultural associations too, because I know that you've talked about loving horror movies and uh, the gothic in, in storytelling. Yes, Do you think there's things I think, that spiders have got that by oh, association? Creatures of the night. Long-legged beasties, you know, things that go bump in the night. And my love of those films comes from my uncle at a very early age who you know, from the I, I, I still remember being about five and asking him whether all other animals thought in English. So the idea was a bee coming to a flower would be thinking like we do. Oh, here's the flower. I have to do this. What a curious question. Very curious. Yeah. <laughs> Explains a lot. <laughs> the years in the Institute. And a couple of years later, he... You know, I thought I want to be like this person. He was he was an animal psychologist, but really could have been in a zoology department. He studied behaviour of, of animals, not right. humans. Yeah. And that never wavered from the age of seven. And it was and no, at that age it wasn't spiders, it was more likely to be you know, kids went through the African mammals because there's what we saw on documentaries. Yeah. But at the same Ryder Haggard and the jungle book and the sort of stories yeah. you know, our generation grew up with. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and I um but I, Jim also introduced me to the classic universal horror films of Frankenstein and Dracula. And, and it, looking back, it's quite an important part of my life because I had never seen the films. He'd seen the films. And yet my father had a book called The Movies. And on, I think, two or three pages, it had stills from those classic 1930s and 1940s horror films with Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and the werewolf. Absolutely fascinating. And about... When I was eight or nine, there was a program late on television that mum and dad allowed me to stay up and watch with them called Wayne and Schuster Take an Affectionate Look at the Monsters. Mm. And these were a Canadian comedy duo, who, but they showed the original clips. And so for the first time, I saw Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster or Bela Lugosi as Dracula or Lon Chaney as the Wolfman. And it was fascinating but absolutely terrifying. And... Thinking about it a year or two later, I, I would say to friends, I, I was so scared I had to stay in mum and dad's bed for three months. <laughs> it was probably two or three days. Yeah. But I had that, you know, fascinating and terrifying at the same time. Yeah. And I think it wasn't anything like, I love the, the atmosphere and the, and the architecture of those films, but it's not that I want to dress up as Dracula and go around at night. Mm. It's just that appreciation. Mm. And I think the thing with spiders was they fitted into that that world, and, you know, you couldn't have Dracula's house being spider-proofed. It just wouldn't look right. So there was all that stuff. And when I went to university, I studied animals. Um, and then when I was 20, I was doing a course in entomology, and the person running it um, said for the first time 
it's not just insects, you can use use spiders. And that was when this light went on in my head and it was just like, oh my God, spiders. And as as most of the important things that happen in your life really are caused by other people, they give you the job, yeah. they have the opportunity. Yeah. Well, for me... Mentors and inf- people that influence come into our lives. Absolutely. And I... It was a year later, so this was 1977, beginning of 77, my interest in spiders. And a year later, um, Robert Jackson, who studied, studied spider behaviours in the States, joined the zoology department early 78. And of course, I, you know, we've worked together since that time, both as you know, a, a, a mentor and a, and a supervisor and then as a colleague and a, you know, a friend for many decades. And that was a huge influence on me because he really... He took me, you know, he took me on as Spider Man's apprentice for, for using a cliche, and um, and it worked out really well. And the spiders for me were, were as somebody curious about animal behaviour and about how animals tick and what mm. they're capable of. It was very much they were a tool for understanding those bigger issues in evolutionary biology, and that's how I've always approached it. The work that I do is not just of interest to people in spiders, it's interest to people that work on all sorts of animals. Mm, and mm. it's just understanding that process. So you go from the micro to the macro. Yes, yeah. very much so. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of doing doing that type of research, and it's sort of the way a PhD is structured. It's, mm. a, it's a philosophy. Because you get more and more and more specialised, don't you? You get very specialised, but you step back from the bigger picture. So, yeah. so in my case, you know, working with spiders, it was understanding how... These particular spiders got the insides out of their prey without ripping the prey apart. And, and, and though it was a consolation prize, it's sort of like a vampire sucking the blood out of people. Yeah. And we, you know, I worked out how they did that. And <clears throat> I had access to a balance at that time that weighed down to a 10 millionth of a gram. So if you took a fruit fly that had just been caught by the spider and put it on the balance, the weight of the fly would go down because it was losing mass because of evaporation of fluids. It was that precise. And so in a way, the spider had a race against time because they only feed on fluids, was to get the fluids out before it gets too sticky. Mm. And so it was, and that was the bigger picture of understanding. Um, there were these models people had about how animals should feed. And my thing was saying, well, you have to take this into account, which people hadn't before, not just with spiders, but with a lot of other things. So mm. it was just wonderful fun. And I got very, very good at feed, hand-feeding these tiny spiders, they're only about three or four millimetres long, yeah. hand-feeding them, taking their food away like you take food away from a cat or a dog, yeah. and reweigh it. And, and my only frustration was, you've got to imagine this very complicated balance, and occasionally I, and I built a little sort of pan that the spiders could sit on, but occasionally they'd get out and they'd climb up the, the, up the wire supporting the pan and go inside the balance. And that was a huge job because it was like a Russian doll. You took layers and layers and layers, and then finally I'd get inside, and there'd be this little spider just sitting there with silk it put all over the apparatus. Yeah. That's all part of it. So what do you you think spiders has taught you about the intelligence of insects? Am I right in calling... Spiders. They're not insects, but broadly they're arthropods. So right. you have you have insects, you right. have spiders, you have crustaceans. Yeah. Not yeah, crustaceans. Yes. Crustaceans. Um, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> One of the things that it, we I remember Robert saying this to me because his work's largely been on a group of spiders 
that are clever like a small mammal. And they're in a broader group called jumping spiders. And it's not that is not a good description because, yes, they can jump. But it's more they have incredibly good eyesight. And it's about one-sixth as good as ours. So you think of an animal that, say, body length of 10 millimetres, being able to see shape, colour, can watch movies projected onto a tiny screen. Mm. And what Robert found was this particular spider called Porsche is particularly clever and it hunts other spiders and it hunts other jumping spiders. So that's, you know, it's a predator hunting other predators and it's like tigers hunting bears or or something like that. So it's a very dangerous um, scenario. And I remember him saying to me around this time was that people didn't believe, this was in the late 70s, people didn't believe that lions were clever enough to organise an ambush. Well, everybody knew that lions were predators and that right. they hunted antelope. Yeah. But this idea of them working as a group and, and tricking animals yeah. and, and catching them. And now everybody says, well, no, that's what they do. Yeah. And they're clever yeah. enough. We wouldn't ever question. Right. And so, so There's been quite a change in thinking about the cleverness of animals. A- absolutely. And going right down. And, and, it's, um, and so the same with Porsche that it's cognitive in a way you wouldn't expect. It's not a hardwired little robot. Like, you could think of ants are a little mm. bit like robots, but they're not really. They're still, again, very sophisticated. And so people's thinking has changed. And if we, you know, if you think back over the last 20 or 30 years, how we, how do we think of primates? We think very differently. And then you find things like crows and kia. Kia are incredibly clever. Mm. And so it's, and, and now people look and they go, well, that part of the brain in humans is actually very similar. It's used in the same way in a bird mm. or it's used in the same way in these primates. Mm. And nobody's going to question the intelligence of our closest relative, a chimpanzee, living yeah. relative. So, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a different world. And I must tell you a story about Porsche. Um, when when I was working on the Bug Lab, this big exhibit with Tapapa and Weta Workshop, we were going to use Porsche because it was such a great story of this animal yes. hunting. And in the exhibit, this they... Is, this is the name that you've gave, given the spider. It's its, it's name. Oh, it's a it's, species called Yeah, species. Portia. It's genus yeah. called Porsche, and then there yeah. are a number of species. I just thought it had a very posh name. It is rather. <laughs> well, Merchant, is it Merchant of Venice? Shakespeare? I don't Por- know. There's a Porsche in Merchant of yeah. Venice. Anyway, um, it, it worked out that it was going to be too expensive to build the models because it's so hairy, and, you know, hair, hairy things equal money. But... I was telling a meet, at a meeting at Weta Workshop and with Tapapa as well, I was telling them how Robert first discovered Porsche. And it was in rainforest in Australia. And he said he was looking at this really messy web and there were different species of spider and there were different insects that had been eaten and there were spider molts and debris in it. And he brushed aside what he thought was a dead leaf and it turned around and looked at him. And that was Porsche. Uh-huh. And when they I was in the as a leaf. Yeah, well they do and they walk a bit like a, a a baby robot learning to walk. They look like something moving in the wind. And <clears throat> at the meeting, um the head of Weta Workshop, Richard Taylor, said we spend billions of dollars looking for life on other planets and all you need to do is brush aside a dead leaf, which I thought was really profound and it's very, very true that a week doesn't go by with there's some remarkable discovery in science. Mm, mm. And so much of that reflects the technology available at the time. And one of the most amazing, this is going away from spiders, but one of the most amazing things I read um, was about gravitational waves. Mm. And 
they were just, they were predicted by Einstein, which is amazing, a hundred years ago, and they built started in the mid nineties to build apparatus that could measure them, and they finally in two thousand and fifteen measured a gravitational wave that I think was it came from a black hole a billion light years away. So the light took a billion years to get here. And this big four-kilometre long, it's not smoke and mirrors, but it's mirrors and lasers. And, and you know, this, this meant that Einstein was right. But the thing that amazed me was the precision of this thing. And one of the people on the team said it was as if we measured the Earth move the width of a human hair closest closer to the nearest star. Mm. Now, is that, that is, to me, is staggering because with our current technology, the thing racing out of the solar system, to get to the nearest star will take it 80,000 years. You mm. can't get your head around that. That's mm. just how big the universe is. Scale. Yeah. And then you go back to brushing yeah. what looks like a leaf. And, and, and it's all there. And, <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, you said earlier yeah. about the trap drawer yeah. spiders. Yeah. It's gained the technology yeah. before yeah. it was just a blur. Um, last night again when I was having this like, oh, I'm going to have a conversation about spiders. <laughs> and I rang my colleague Laura, um, who I work with at Scorpio Books, who adores animals. And um, she's like, ask about the peacock spider. Um, and so then I got online and I was watching videos of the dance. Oh, how divine. I know, yeah. I know. And then you, you said to me earlier that your new book is titled why is the spider Why dance? is the spider dancing? Yeah. And the thing with jumping spiders is because they have such good eyesight, mm. they, the males impress females with these bright colours and these dancing. And what they're really advertising is their genetic fitness. You know, look at me, I can do all this stuff, I'd be a really good dad, and, and you'll have sons that can do the same as me, and, <laughs> and your daughters will be good at picking out good males. So that's really what it is. But the thing with the peacock spider is the guy that's taking the videos of them, because these things are tiny, they're like five millimetres, mm. but he's managed to capture as if you're down there with them, and then, you know, you put a song by the Bee Gees to them or, or yeah. YMCA and it, they're just perfect. It's perfect, yeah. isn't yeah. it? So. Someone actually, she pointed out, someone actually done one with lightsabers, put lightsabers in their arms. <laughs> That's, I just, yeah, I love the influence of culture and biology and, yeah. you know, making fun of animals. Yeah. And I think that the idea of anthropomorphising animals, when I did zoology and, and psychology, that was, you know, oh no, you can't, you can't compare human behaviour to, or, or incorporate what seems only human behaviour into animals. But now we go, well, no, actually, it's pretty similar. Mm. I mean, there's nothing special about us. We're mm. still biological. Mm. Um, there's nothing about our brain. What would your uncle have said about that as an animal that, psychologist? Um, I think back then they were probably were influenced, yeah. and in that no, you must, you must be objective. You must just see. Right. And so you weren't sort of seeing the wood for the trees. But things have changed. But things have changed dramatically, yes. Yeah. And you've done amazing books, um, New Zealand books, introducing um, children to natural history. How has your writing developed? That's a very. Well, it's interesting because when I started. Um, when I started, I, was, I can't remember why I was asked to do the first books. Well, I'm a spider and I'm an insect. But I have a feeling it may have been mixed up with the earlier spider exhibition that I've been involved with. So they thought, well, let's. And I'd had a lot of experience writing for adults because around the time I was working in the US at universities, I became interested in writing popular articles. And I wrote for Natural History magazine. Mm. And they have a 
a long history of they have a long history of um, having scientists write um, for them for a popular for a broad audience. So you'd write I'd write about my PhD and postdoc research on crab spiders, and tr that would be translated to doing that. And so that gave me a, a confidence in being able to write both as a scientist. And a, and a popular writer adult. And so when it came to writing kids' books, I, you know, struggled a bit because it was such a different voice. And subsequently, I've sort of got a confidence in that, and it's finding your own voice. And I, when I did the last book, Why Is That Lake So Blue?, um, you know, that's a 17,000, I think a 17,000 word book. It was about 15 months I worked on it, not eight hours a day, but it was always with me. And I loved doing it. And I loved researching New Zealand's geology or mm. conservation, all this mm. stuff. But I found I got into a zone of writing uh, for that audience. And I say to people, whether I'm writing a science paper, whether I'm writing for Natural History magazine, or whether I'm writing a kid's book, they're all equally challenging in different ways. It's not the science paper's harder. And I think a lot of people have this idea that, I remember somebody saying to me, because the concept of writing for a broad audience as a scientist mm. was not that popular. And and I remember back when I started doing it, I said, would you, would, would you rather have two prestigious science papers or one prestigious science paper and one popular article? Yeah. And everybody said, two prestigious science papers, but yeah. now that's no. changed. And I think, you know, the community who, who Getting funds... Getting the work out of the university to... Absolutely. To the broader audience is so important. And I can't remember if Albert Einstein said this. It may have been somebody else. But it was, if you can't explain it to an eight-year-old, you don't understand it, which I yeah. think is fantastic. So now when I'm writing this new book, um, and I, I was talking uh, to somebody I worked with for a long time who, who's a literary agent, and she said, I said... I, 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 when we went, when we went into lockdown, all my other talks stopped. So I had four months, effectively, to write this book, mm. and I wrote three thousand words in four months. It just wasn't. I was too distracted, and and and, and um, Vicky said, "Yeah, so was everybody else." And yet, in the last month, I wrote six thousand words, mm. and I've got that spider mojo back. And back into I, the flow. Can, and if somebody says, "Oh, can you write two hundred words on?" Trap jaw spiders. Yeah. I can go. Yeah, I'm right there, and I'll start yeah. here and there. I was I was flipping through why is that lake so blue again this morning, and it just really captured the magic, the magic mm. of Aotearoa, yeah. and and uh, all aspects of nature, um, the soil, the animals, the air, the water. Yeah, yeah, uh, and a beautiful photography to they, they do fantastic. I mean, yeah. the, Tapapa Press did just such a wonderful job with the layout and the, and the choice of images and the mm. look of it. Mm. And I remember I was a bit burned out when I finished it, and and I needed to do all the captions for the photos. And I was a bit like two care albatross. <laughs> and, um, Nicola, the publisher, came back to me and she said, Simon, this is terrible. <laughs> you know, what do people do? They pick up a book and they flick through and they'll read a caption. So I got back into that and then I made them animated and yeah. it was fun. Yeah. And I you know, I had a wonderful time. And, and, and I do feel, like I was saying, you know, I have, having had that experience, this one is, is really enjoyable. And also it's more a topic I know. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I'm just going to finish with the Tamariki Book Festival. What will you be doing on the day? Um, Therese asked me to give a uh, workshop on writing mm. and it's not that you'll come along and be able to write, it's giving people a sense of how 
how I get my ideas and then how do I start writing. And, and for me, it's always been having a hook. It's like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. Yeah. And for the blue book, it was the fact that the closest relative of the Kiwi is the extinct elephant bird in Madagascar, and that Antarctica had tropical rainforests or subtropical rainforests. To me, that that was just such a wonderful place. Yeah. And I, and I so think start we start with what you're curious about. Curious, and, and we do live in such a wonderful place, irrespective of all of the natural disasters. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me, Simon. It's been very enjoyable. Thanks very much. Thanks. Come along to the Tamariki Book Festival, November 22nd, in the Tūranga TSB space, 10 till 4. Check out our podcasts on the Plains FM website. Just search Tamariki Book Festival. Tamariki Book Festival.